Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we have a special guest. We've brought in local woman, Sam. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you. I am the first woman you guys could find. That's right. (laughs) And uh, we needed to have her here because today we're continuing our series on Florence Pugh uh, by talking about little women. You never ask about my mother, even when you know I've seen her. I assume she's still alive. But I ask after your mother. And I have no idea why. You're willfully missing the point. That's true. What, what is that? What, what do they want? I have no idea. Father, are you here? Father, are you publishing What this? happened to the little women? Tell me you have the rest of this book. What? This is a period family romance coming of age drama. Directed by Greta Gerwig. The cast includes Ed Sheeran's Galway Girl, Soraya Knight, Hermione Granger, Vice Admiral Holdo, Paul Atreides, Emma Krellin, Saul Goodman, and Miranda Priestly. I watched this movie on YouTube where I had to purchase it. Sam, where did you watch it? I watched it on Hulu. And I watched it on Amazon, which turned out to be good because it was a couple of weeks between rewatching this movie. Um, so. And uh, I had to buy it as well. <laughs> right. And so if, if you want to see this movie, there's plenty of options out there. Um, but we will begin our discussion of Little Women by recapping the events in this movie with a synopsis that was written by Joey. And I'll get us started. Joe March, her three sisters, and her mother live in a small house in Concord, Massachusetts. They grew up happy even though their father was fighting in the Civil War. When they were young, each sister had big dreams and unique talents that they explored together. Their mother, Marmy, is extremely selfless. One Christmas, she and the girls give their beautiful Christmas dinner to a poor family down the road. This act is noticed by their rich neighbors, the Lawrences, who in turn gift the Marches a dinner of their own. The Lawrences and the Marches grow close, especially Joe and the Lawrence boy, Lori. The sisters spend many happy nights playing music laughing, and acting in plays that Joe writes. However, the good times can never last. Marmy goes to assist with the war and visit her husband who has been wounded. Beth, the youngest sister, gets scarlet fever and falls very ill. Joe's sister Amy is sent to live with their rich Aunt March until Beth recovers. Meanwhile, the other sister, Meg, is falling in love with Lori's tutor, who is a humble, hardworking, but conspicuously not rich man. Joe does her best to keep the family together, but even after Beth recovers and their father returns from the war, things don't go back to normal. Meg and the tutor marry, and after the ceremony, Lori proposes to Joe. She turns him down, saying that she doesn't think she will ever marry. Aunt March then invites Amy to Europe to seriously study painting. Now that two of her sisters are no longer at home, Joe moves to New York City to become a writer and teacher, sending what money she can home. There, she meets Frederick, a fellow teacher and immigrant. He takes an interest in her, but critiques her writing, and she storms off. Meanwhile, in Europe, Amy is courted by a fancy rich boy named Fred Vaughn. Lori also appears in Europe and starts bothering Amy about her decisions to stop pursuing painting and pursue a rich marriage. Later, he also confesses that he is in love with Amy. Back in Massachusetts, Beth is sick again. Joe returns home to care for her but the youngest sister is in really bad shape. Everyone returns home, 
except Amy, who isn't told. Beth dies from her illness, and everyone, including me and Joey and Ben, (laughs) is very sad. Joe begins to regret her decision to not be with Lori and writes him a letter telling him so, but Amy is proposed to by Fred Vaughn, but she turns him down. Amy finds Lori and the two of them get married, then return to the States. Joe hides her pain from Lori and Amy and gives them her blessing. Soon after, Aunt March dies and leaves her giant house to Joe. Joe turns it into a school and employs all her teacher friends. Frederick finds Joe in Massachusetts and tells her he is moving to California for new opportunities. Joe stops him just before he gets on a train and asks him to stay for her. Throughout the movie, Joe is shown speaking to a publisher who accepts one of her stories but insists that if the protagonist is female, she must be married or dead by the end. Joe eventually agrees after haggling over royalties, and her book, Little Women, is published. The end. There we have it, the events of Little Women. We'll begin our analysis with our pros and our cons. Sam, what did you like about Little Women? I loved everything, um, but if I had to pick a couple things, I really loved this incredible star-studded cast we have. I love Saoirse Ronan. Greta Gerwig is a great director that's coming out and really connect with her. And I think they're a real powerhouse together in, in the movies they've done. I really enjoyed the creative choice of the director to split the timeline and to have those timeline splits interspace between so so powerfully. I thought it was a great contrast between between the golden hues of childhood and that kind of bluish, sad, lonely tones of the adulthood present scenes. And I also thought the shots were just really beautiful and the score was pretty moving and definitely made me cry <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah, it's uh, the whole story is interesting. It's heartfelt. Um, it's really powerful. It made me cry more than once, even the second viewing. Um, <laughs> It's the nonlinear story structure is awesome, just like you said, Sam. It's so cool the way she ties everything together and puts different aspects of the of the story next to each other, um, and gives you this kind of unique perspective for the whole thing. It makes the whole thing a lot more powerful. Um, and yeah, the acting from everyone is so incredible. Uh, every there's all these little moments between actors that are just amazing. Uh, and it's amazing to think about how they were even to be able to to get to that point. Um, and it has this feeling of simulated reality, even though it's not exactly real. It's, it's a uh, you know, semi-autobiographical. It feels real. Um, and that does a lot for me. What about you, Ben? It's, uh, one of the things that really jumps out to me about this movie is the seamless transition between past and present. I mean, that's like an um, aspect of this movie that really jumps out. The, it also made me feel a lot of powerful emotions. Some of them I enjoyed more than others, but anytime a movie <laughs> is able to evoke emotion from me i i think that's an achievement uh it has a fantastic cast uh especially from the actress that we're studying over this uh series is florence Pugh. she's great in this movie and um i think that this movie delivers on the appeal that the book is supposed to deliver on and i'll expand on that a little bit later and also i love the emphasis on the power of storytelling uh within this story so um, those are the pros. Let's move on to our cons. Sam, what did you not like about Little Women? Hard to be, I guess, nitpicky when I enjoyed the movie so much. But if I had to think more critically, I think the romances fell a little bit flat. You know, this is a story about the little women. But when the men entered their lives, it it wasn't played up enough where we connected with the characters, I think. And then although we were both 
we were all three kind of harping on how well the storytelling was with the past and present interspaced. I think if you're coming into this world of little women for the first time, it can make the movie a little bit confusing to follow along, even though it, it is such a great storytelling device. Yeah, I agree. It is really confusing. Um, and I didn't even notice this the first time I watched it, but it actually says seven years earlier on the screen, but it was covered up by the subtitles. So I didn't even really, <laughs> I, the first time I saw it, I didn't even realize it was there. Well, the, the first um, time I, yeah, like that was also the aspect of this movie that I wasn't totally in love with was at the beginning, yeah. I was kind of confused by the jump between past and present. That was the one that was clear to me, though, was just like they're saying, hey, seven years ago, and right. they don't give you that uh, anymore after that one time, which I'm not saying is a problem, but initially caused a little bit of confusion for me. Right. Yeah. Second watch, it's clear. I felt that way, too. But the first time, you're taking it back just a little bit enough where you're a little uncomfortable. But of course, the second watch, you're like, obviously, this is seven years. <laughs> right, right. I, I can tell Florence Pugh is a child here. Like, right, right. <laughs> and, and also yes. having to keep track of all the characters as well and trying to identify who's important and who matters at, you know, in a room full of people that potentially could matter. So it, it's, again, just getting on track with this movie is a little bit more difficult than I think the average movie. Right. But eventually it, it all clarifies yeah but it definitely rewards you for paying attention right and there's i mean there's a bunch of scenes that are very similar but you can tell if they're in the past or present sort of like what sam said earlier about the um the golden hues and the blue tones right there's literally a color difference between the past and present um but also like you know you see john wandering outside so you know that that's the the present i guess uh because he's there with uh with meg or you know that uh it's the past because um, Joe's hair is short, so you know that happened uh, right after that. So there's little clues in there that reward you for paying attention, keep you on track of what's going on, and eventually you get into the the uh, the flow of it. Um, yeah, but for a portrait of a time period, it's it's a very limited perspective, um, and yeah, that's you know that's because it's telling the story of these upper middle class white women up in the north uh, during the Civil War. Uh, they're pretty isolated from a lot of the problems that you, that you see, although they do address some of those. Um, and I wish there was more of this brutal honesty motif, which is something that I want to talk about more in depth later, um, because I think that's something that they could have expanded on more uh, that I think I just didn't quite get enough of to really understand. Okay, so those are the pros and the cons. Let's dive into this movie um, with a little bit more... Uh analysis in our overall section and we'll begin uh with questions for you sam so sam what was your experience with little women before this movie have you read the book or seen any of the other movies i was actually brand new to little women which i'm a little bit embarrassed to admit i feel like <laughs> this is a book i've definitely should have read before it's been on my list it's by a woman author in the time period stuff that i really enjoy so i feel like i haven't to test and I haven't done my homework, but um, brand new. Would love to okay. read the book. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I think it's free on Amazon or, or Audible actually. Uh, I, yeah, you spare twelve hours. I definitely have it on my Kindle already. I just have to do the oh wow. the work of actually opening the book <laughs> virtually. I mean, even this movie is a little intimidating. I think so. I I definitely get that. But yeah, this this is a classic. I mean, it's been around for one hundred and fifty years. Um, 
and it's on my list of like hundred great books scratch off poster I have that I also haven't read. Yeah, what about you, Benjamin? Well, have you read? No, I um, and, and I haven't even uh, seen the previous iterations of this uh, story told as movies. So, um, really coming from the outside in, but. It is, uh, well, and I actually didn't even know there were previous iterations until this one. So I'm really <laughs> just getting caught really up to Little it. Women. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Sam, now that you have uh, gotten into the world of Little Women, what about this movie speaks to you personally? Well, I think one of the reasons why you plucked me off the street uh, to interview me for this, <laughs> I am a woman and this is a very woman-centered, you know, directed by a woman. The cast is... Uh, what 89% women. So I love something that's centered on something I can relate to. I also, like I kind of mentioned, I love like period pieces, big Pride and Prejudice fans. So this is, you know, 50 so years around it. So I definitely enjoy that. And I really like Greta Gerwig as a director. I watched her movie Lady Bird before, also starring. Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet. So I feel like I was a little bit prepped for this movie. Um, But I think she's had a lot of same shared experiences that I have, like going to an all-girls school and stuff like that. So I like her eye when she directs her movies and it kind of resonates with experiences I've had. And another thing about this movie that I want to speak to me more personally is this bond between sisters. As I mentioned, Mm. like I went to an all-girls school, so I'm very familiar with having these female relationships in my life, but I've never had the most central one. I only have a younger stinky brother. I don't have that kind of (laughs) sister bond. And this movie kind of makes me ache for it a little bit and kind of, you know, calls back to some of the relationships with women I've had in my life. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly that's the strongest aspect of it is that strong family um, bond that you see between everyone. Um, it is really attractive. It makes you long for that. Well, and also, um, I think it doesn't go overboard with glamorizing it either. Uh, we see the rivalry between Joe and Amy, um, and we get to see a very real aspect of, I'm, you know, I, I have a sister, but I'm, I'm not a woman myself, so I don't have the exact same relationship that's portrayed between the sisters in this movie, but um, it's not always uh, you know, easygoing and just magically nice. Uh, you know, there, there is conflict as well, and I think the movie does well to portray both. Definitely. So kind of going more into this, Sam, what themes are present for you in this movie that really speak to you? I think uh, one of the first themes that pops out, especially given how it's represented visually, is the contrast between kind of the magic of childhood, the golden hues and the reminiscence and nostalgia. All the sisters are happy and and this crazy tight-knit, bustling, chaotic in a good way family is portrayed. And then contrasting with the kind of loneliness and coldness of adulthood, which definitely pops out to me as I think we're all in a similar point in our lives where we're fully going on adult mode, I guess, if that's not too millennial-esque of me to say. Um, you know, we've we lost switched that. it to adult mode. Right. Turn the dial, yeah, the dial all dials the way, all the way up. <laughs> um, but yeah, it can be isolating, especially in current times. Um, losing that core college community and maybe moving away somewhere else. So it definitely resonates there. Another one that I like is Joe, you touched on this, the family bond, the family relationship portrayal that's here. 
between the sisters and even with the people that they make their family, I love that Lori, who has this kind of isolated, stricter childhood, is brought into this den of sisters and and Marmy. I love that he finds something he's been looking for. And even Mr. Lawrence seeing his daughter in Beth when she plays the piano, I think all of those relationships really tug at your heartstrings and make you feel strong emotions, <laughs> Benjamin, as you said. Yeah. No, definitely. I like anytime like a bunch of people come together for a common cause, like that really gets to me. And just seeing how the um uh, seeing how the family grows, especially at the very end when Frederick comes to visit and all of them are in there. Uh, Bob Odenkirk's in there and the Lawrences and Mr. Brooke and everybody. Uh, it's just like they're, the love that the Marches feel for each other has ma- expanded their family and grown it to somewhat, to such a greater degree. So all these new people are in there that all want to be a part of it. Uh, I love that stuff. It's so, <laughs> it makes me tear up just thinking about it. So. <laughs> What else, Sam? I think expanding on kind of the transition into adulthood, I think it really, especially in, in this time and even in now, it's finding your place in the world and kind of managing society's expectations of you, especially maybe versus the ones you have, you've had for yourself or your experiences up to that point. And I think Florence Pugh, our actress that we're talking about, the actress of the hour, I think she <laughs> delivers an extremely powerful scene, especially revolving around a woman in want of a marriage, basically the theme of this kind of whole time and, and a central theme of this movie. Let's play it. I'm just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. It may not be for you, but it most certainly is for me. I think she delivers this very powerfully. She's talking to Lori in this scene, and it illustrates the opening you know line that was delivered in the movie i think we could play the quote later about how you know a woman's only good if she's married or dead basically in this time you don't really have any agency outside of of marriage in making your way in the world money wise unless as meryl streep says in the movie you were born rich then you get to do what you want to do That's which right. still a theme today right <laughs> um, <laughs> still true but still sadly true <laughs> So I think I think Florence delivers this really beautifully, and you can also feel how angry she is, especially addressing it to Lori, because in this scene he's being such a little privileged shit, yes. if I may. Um, <laughs> you may, in fact. <laughs> thank you. Hundred percent agree. Because he's he's talking to her. He's like, "Why don't you marry for love? The poets talk of love. Why would you do this to yourself?" And she's like, "Of course you can sit there and say that to me." rich Laurie who gets to marry whatever he wants, do whatever he wants. I have other thoughts to think about, right? Yeah, other pressures. Mm-hmm. This, so this monologue was written at the very last minute as a suggestion from Meryl Streep, apparently. Um, and it was a, the intention was to more clearly show modern audiences what the struggle is for women in this time. Um, but no, it's, it's such a, I love this quote because it's such a stark, like address, it addresses starkly exactly the um, the problem 
that these women are facing um, without really beating around it. And I think it gives them the agency they deserve because I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that they weren't aware specifically of this situation they're in, right? It's not like like women were asleep for hundreds of years, you know, thinking like, oh, well, maybe we should have, you know, maybe we should agitate for rights or something. This is something that's always been there in the background, you know, steaming and uh, simmering. Um, And, you know, I think Florence Pugh's character here really hits the nail on the head. She's like, this is an economic proposition. It always has been. You know, people pretend it's not, but but it certainly is. I think there's still elements of that today. You know, I think you still want you get you feel a pressure to marry up or to you know be with someone who's going to take care of you financially, um, because that's still 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 a big part of being alive today is worrying about that sort of thing. Although like nowadays it's it's easier for women to find jobs in other fields, <laughs> it's still not as easy as it should be. There's certainly these glass ceilings that have to be broken. It's uh it's crazy. It's that we are we're still. This is still working. This still is still sort of true. Especially like a lot of um, some women dominated traditionally woman professions. I'm referencing teaching. I feel like that is very difficult to manage by yourself. Living on that salary with those kind of pressures. It's almost, it would be easier, much easier to navigate with a partner, I guess. So. Certainly. Yeah, no, I uh, was living in Oklahoma during all of the the teacher strikes that happened. I think I was 2018. And uh, one of the signs that one of the teachers who was protesting uh, at the Capitol had said, my husband works to support my teaching habit. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And there was, yeah, unfortunately, the result of that strike was not a whole lot of change, but I was definitely impacted by that sign. Yeah, exactly. And yet, you know, that that's like a, there's a, it's complicated, right? Because teaching is an essential job, so you can pay people as little as you want, basically. That's how those sort of work, as we've mm-hmm. learned over the last two years. But it's just, um, yeah, it, it, it's, 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 there's no accident. I don't think there's no, um, I don't think it's, an, it's uh, unrelated that that field is dominated by women as well. I think those two are related. Um yeah. Patriarchy seeps into every aspect of our lives. That's really right. It's 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 pervasive. Clutches. It's everywhere. It pervasive. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have another quote here, uh, Sam, uh, that sort of goes along with this. You want us to play us now? Yeah, I'd love that. When I get in a passion, I get so savage. I could hurt anyone, and I'd enjoy it. You remind me of myself. But you're never angry. I'm angry nearly every day of my life. Yeah, so I think this is a great example of where female rage kind of comes into the story. I know it's such a happy, heartwarming movie, but there is definitely (laughs) this undercurrent of discontent and rage that's in the movie, especially this scene and Florence Pugh's scene and, and a couple others. But I think it's interesting, one, seeing... Joe speak to her marmy, her mom like this in such an adult relationship, kind of, you know, sitting down eye to eye and also having Joe realize that her mother isn't this happy-go-lucky, she's happy all the time kind of person, you know, the 
reminds me of the one Marvel quote where my secret is I'm angry all the time, you know, (laughs) whatever that is. The Hulk. Sorry, I don't want to bring in Marvel short quit movies. Maybe we can just cut that out. Um, (laughs) No, no. I mean, it's it's clearly something that resonates, right? (laughs) No, definitely. I think that this is, no, I think this is an example of like um, uh, your weaknesses become your strengths, right? Like, if you're really, really forgetful, you be, you sort of become better organized in order to compensate for that. Um, and the same thing is true here. She's she feels a lot of rage, so she overcompensates and she becomes this selfless person who's always trying to combat that. Um, but throughout the movie, you like it's not really Marmy's rage you see like very much at all. It's it's Joe's, and you see her overcome that over and over again, and just how hard that is for her. Um, and those are some of the most powerful moments in the movie. After she cuts her hair and she's crying, after she forgives Amy and 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 Laurie, um, and when they when they decide to marry each other, that all of those moments are you can see Joe's rage, and yet she overcomes that for the betterment of the family. Um, and you know where does that come from exactly? It's sort of it's sort of that same problem that Florence Pugh was talking about, right? She's like, what can I even do in this situation? I feel so helpless. Um, there's only so many prospects I even have. I, I If I want to go my own way, I have to sacrifice all these other things in my life, right? All these relationships that I treasure so much are no longer valuable because I'm not marrying Lori or because I'm not, you know, I want my sisters to stay here. Um, all of that stuff is uh, just fuels that rage that she has because she's so she has so little control over her own life. At least that's what it seems like to me. Right. Yeah. I think it goes back to what you said that women have are have known about how their situations are in respect to their economic propositions, their opportunities in so- society. Right. They've known about it. We're not just you know these women act like oh happy content reign in the rage but underneath there's this kind of like boiling right you can feel it in florence Pugh's monologue you hear it in the quiet rage from marmy and you can see it with joe's you know ever-present rage throughout the movie yeah I, i mean that's the thing is like is balancing that right and that's what um i think uh we'll get to this a little bit later but there's this whole idea of like this is just a normal like a normal family right there's nothing really special about them beyond like their great love for each other but you see this ext- these extreme emotions and extreme happiness and tragedy all happen in front of you and you it makes you really feel for them in a way that you know a maybe a marvel movie wouldn't you know even though it's it's the scale is so <laughs> now we have to include now we have to keep it in there sam <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> only if we bash it a little bit the, um, <laughs> like you know the scale is is really s- small, right? It's just this one family, you know, in in its in this long ago time, right? But this, uh, you, it has these great stakes to it because of the emotion, the great emotions that the characters go through, um, which is something that you don't get. It's it's so much harder to get to when it's like the whole world is threatened or something like that, right? Um, it, but it, and you feel so much deeper for that for that tragedy than you do. Um, in in something that's a little more bombastic that's claiming to have these great and epic stakes yeah no and i think that's something that's special about this movie is how it's able to make us feel so invested in these quote-unquote small stakes situations because um while it's maybe something that happens every day uh you know 
tragedy within a family or any sort of interpersonal, you know, uh, disruption of your relationships, uh, this movie gets you invested in it. So it feels you can see it in the same way that you see those things experienced in your own life. Because while, you know, a death in your own family, your personal family might not be the you know, a life altering event to anyone who's not involved to you, that is your world falling apart. And this movie, uh, helps you to see that, um, in a, in a way that is very real. Yeah. And cathartic, I think, you know, it, it shows like the positives and negatives of that, how it brings everyone so close together. Um, and how it just, um, how they're able to support each other because they're all there, you know, and even though it hits every single person individually really hard, together they're able to weather through it so i I think that's just um it's just amazing really it's simple but it's that's the other thing i love about this movie it's just how seamless it is you know it's it's almost like describing this movie writing the synopsis is so difficult because i don't get across any of the emotions that happen throughout the movie it's just like a series of events but it comes together to paint this really beautiful picture and gives you this really nice idea of what this family is like and what 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 this uh, what this time period was like for people like this. Okay, Sam, I got another quote for you to react to. Uh, what do you think about this one? You know, I just, I just feel, I just feel like women, they, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts and they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty and i'm so sick of people saying that that love is just all a woman is fit for i'm so sick of it but i'm i'm so lonely yeah that quote definitely hits hard um i love Saoirse Ronan. and i think her delivery here is is great it really makes you step back a second but i think this is in this moment it speaks in this time of the century and i think it's addressed to modern women too it's like why aren't i allowed to have it all right why can't i have my ambitions and my career and can i be independent but i still want to be loved i don't want to sacrifice one aspect of my character to be taken seriously in the other you know yeah um that's the thing i think that's it's so like uh it's so hard to get across i think but um joe is like has that need right she has a need for that family aspect she's always loved her family more than anything and she's willing to sacrifice and do anything for them um and yet she's moving in a direction that is sort of antithetical to that uh, because she has to be on her own and be by herself. She doesn't want to marry, even though she wants to have a family, right? It's sort of ironic. Um, and yeah, I think it's just it's just a tragedy overall, because it feels like she's going to be isolated from this. She won't be able to... She doesn't see these things as contradictory, right? That she can be a writer or be on her own um, and still have this strong family aspect because it's something that she's always had um uh but you know i think that there's also this human need for connection that she's slowly realizing that she can't go without um and yeah i I think i just i really do love this this quote yeah and i I just think also it has to do with like the time that she exists in where she sees somebody like meg who 
follows the traditional path of a married woman and her life is kind of I wouldn't say secondary to her husband but like she's the homemaker and her husband is the one with the career or the job even though we already said he's like conspicuously poor or whatever <laughs> but <laughs> I think she wants to kind of break out of that archetype and and to do that she has to reject this idea of committing to love. Uh, but that doesn't mean that she stops being a human. Joe is notably not a robot. And she feels that la- like that she wants to have love in her life, even though she doesn't want, she, it's not gonna be so easy for her to give up something like being her own woman and having, like using her talents to, uh, you know, go on and have a successful career. Um, so I, I, it is going back to what Sam said, like wanting to have it all and having to cope with the idea that in the world she lives in, that is next to impossible, or it at least appears to be impossible. Well, she seems to be, you know, kind of right behind Amy in her own realization about what her prospects are, right? Because if she was as realistic as Amy is being, saying that marriage is an economic proposal, right? then she would just find some rich boy to marry, right? Regardless of love and use that as an opportunity for her own, you know, to, to accelerate her own career, right? She could, she could do that. But she's, she is so much more of a romantic, you know, she, she's a storyteller. She wants this to be something true. And, you know, there's something romantic, you might say, uh, about being on your own and make your own way. Um, and so she's, uh, you know, she's kind of in love with this idea, uh, but it's at odds with how she truly is, which is that she needs to have that, that close connection with people. Um, yeah. And it comes as her family is kind of crumbling around her, yes. right? We've just lost Beth, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, Amy is not on the scene or she's soon to find out that Amy has married Lori to her her other kind of family people making family without her in a way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she just sees her family connections kind of getting away from her and she still wants to pursue what she wants, but she wants to be loved. She wants that comfort of family, but the scene is in the attic and it's blue and it's cold. So we know we're feeling lonely, (laughs) right? That's how she's feeling in this scene. Oh yeah. she doesn't want to be seen as as weak for needing these things to go on, right? No, that's exactly right. And throughout the movie too, right? She's always always people are telling her she's going to marry eventually. You'll marry eventually, right? Eventually, you'll you'll get married. Uh, and you don't even know if that's true or ne- like necessarily throughout, like in the story, because it's it's hard to tell exactly what happens at the end. But she's uh, oh, I have thoughts on well, that. We'll get to that. So th- so it's <laughs> it's. Uh, it's it's fascinating to see her trying to just constantly rebel against this, and yet everyone in her life, including her sisters, are like, eventually, you know, you're going to get to the point where you're going to find someone you want to marry, Joe. And she just like is re- she's disgusted by that whole idea, as as if that has to be the goal, right? Right, exactly. Okay, so um, going on with our next question, we are in the middle of our Florence Pugh series, so let's take a moment to focus on. The, uh, the lady of the hour. Uh, Sam, what did you think of Florence Pugh in this movie? I loved her. I think she knocked it out of the park. I'm very biased, though, because I'm definitely a Florence Pugh fan. I don't know if I have a crush on her, if I want to be just like her. I can't decide. <laughs> but I think she kills the, the Amy character in making Amy 
so relatable and likable at the end. I think from what I've been looking at, Amy has traditionally been perceived or portrayed as this just annoying, sniveling little sister type thing, which she nails in the beginning, I think. She has kind of like a rounder childish face. So I think in the beginning, you can definitely believe that she's this, what, 13 or younger little sister? I think she's supposed to be 13. This was not apparent to me at first, (laughs) but... She's yeah. When she's got the bad bangs, I think the bad bangs means you're young. (laughs) There you go. But I think also it it's kind of funny in the scene where she's in the schoolhouse, you know, drawing pictures and trading her limes. She's surrounded with these other young girls who very young. You look at and you're like, oh, that's how old she's supposed to be, I guess. Um, But yeah, she totally hams it up as the younger sister who just you know tugs at the end of your dresses and makes you want to pull your hair out. And then we see a great transition and her maturation into the character she is in the second half of the movie where she's practical and kind of wise and knows what it's about and knows what she needs to do to keep her family afloat and and stake her role in whatever society she's allowed to participate in at this time. One moment I really love... Um, you can when you can see her transformation, but also see that she's still fun Amy in there is right at the beginning of the movie when we first are introduced to Amy when she's riding in the carriage with Meryl Streep. We see Lori walking the other way and she has her kind of love moment where he's walking by in slow motion yeah. or whatever. And she sees him, her eyes light up and immediately you hear childhood Amy voice come out. She's Lori, Lori, Lori and jumps out of the carriage forgetting that she's this woman of society who paints now. And I think that's so (laughs) fun how she kind of keeps those playful dynamic. Definitely. I mean, Lori just brings that out in people. (laughs) Um, I would act that way if I saw Timothy (laughs) Chalamet walking the other way too. You shot Lori at him? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. That transition is the most dramatic for her. I think everyone else in the story is pretty consistent. Um, but for Amy, she's, yeah, she goes from being that annoying sister to being like a respectable woman. And one of the more practical people in, this, in the story, you know, I think she really takes up after Aunt March's um, uh, advice saying that you're the, o- you're, you're the only sane one left in the family, like the only sensible one, the one that's going to save everyone because everyone else is, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joe is a lost cause. Um, you know, what, what's Meg? Meg's already Meg married. married poor. Meg married poor. <laughs> um, and then Beth is sick. So, you know, it's, uh, she's out of the picture too. So Amy's the only one left that can save the family. Um, and she really takes to that, you know, for better or for worse. Um, uh, I think that she ends up, I know. I don't know. She doesn't seem like she's miserable in that high society necessarily, right? Maybe it's not exactly what she wanted, but she seems to be able to play the game and, uh, um, you know, make the sac- make sacrifices for what she think is thinks is right. Um, so who knows? Yeah, I was also a big fan of Florence Pugh's performance in this movie. Um, I'm, I also count myself as a Florence Pugh fan. I actually Midsummer is what did it for me, Sam. I actually that converted me into a full-fledged Florence Pugh fan. Uh, But this one quote uh, that she delivers in one of the scenes where she's younger definitely won me over uh, in this movie. I'm making a mold of my foot for Lori to remind him I have nice feet. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, uh, yeah. She, she was fantastic. Oh, I mean, yeah. That, that quote says it all. Well, like, what did she say earlier in the movie? She says something like, I have such nice feet. Like, yeah. I yeah. <laughs> she She comes to Lori's right after she gets uh, reprimanded for drawing in the school. Yes. And she's crying outside the window. She says, hi, I'm Amy. I, I would never break my ankle. Like, I have such nice feet. I'm <laughs> the Isn't nicest in the family. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the nicest in the family. <laughs> really ahead of her time with oh, the, yeah. uh, the foot interest, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, and I... Yeah, she was great. Was. Yeah, Florence Pugh is great in this movie, but it's also great to see her amongst such uh, like a, a bunch of other great actresses. Um, it, it really does feel like uh, an a star-studded roster, as we appreciated earlier, um, and it's great to see her among those greats. Definitely. So, Sam, do you feel a close connection to the women in this story? And what about the struggles and hurdles of that time? Do they still translate to today? Yeah, I think I relate most to the focal sisters, I would say, of the movie. So Joe and Amy, because they're really wrestling with figuring out where they fit. And like I said earlier, I feel like I'm in a time of my life where I'm finishing up school, hopefully soon. And um, <laughs> I'm going to have to figure out like what I'm going to do, where I'm going to be and stuff like that. So I'm ready for my own cold blue moments very soon. And I think... um as far as the struggles relating, I think we've been hinting throughout our whole conversation. It's like, yeah, you know, sadly, this kind of still rings true today. But I also still think it was told very purposefully in a way to do that. That some of those quotes, you can say, oh, yeah, this definitely applies to then, but this is speaking from now. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of sad <laughs> to see how we can still relate both of those quotes, but, you know. Yeah. We're getting there, I guess. It reminds me of when we did Do the Right Thing um, uh, last year. And we, I listened to this interview from Spike Lee. And, he, and they asked him, well, how do you feel about this movie still being relevant, you know, 30 years later? And he's like, well, it's a real indictment on America, isn't it? <laughs> and mm -hmm. I feel the same way with this. Like, this is still relevant 150 years later. That doesn't seem like there's, there's certainly aspects of this that are great, right? But there's a heavy, especially this movie heavy emphasis on the limitations that women are put through and the fact that that's still something that we're dealing with is um you know maybe we should take a, a harder look at uh, where we're at i give you one little factoid i guess that marriage has still been an, i guess an, an economic proposition for women i think it was 1974 so not that long ago right that's when a law was passed, I think, that allowed women to apply for their own credit cards That's right. independent of their husband. That's right. I, I remember that. Um, right. So how sad is that? You know, <laughs> you're thinking of the 70s. Oh, women can vote, right? They're equal. But like, you still can't have your own money outside of your husband. That's crazy. At that point. So how far, you know, maybe we should pick up the speed a little bit. Yeah, here. yeah. Accelerate more. <laughs> no, definitely. So we'll we'll uh, we'll keep it going here with another quote for you, Sam. Um, and I'd love to hear your reaction to this one. Started something, but I don't think it's very good. Everyone likes what you write. No, they don't. I do. Well, it's just about our little life. So, well, who will be interested in a story of domestic struggles and joys? It doesn't have any real importance, does it? Maybe it doesn't seem important because people don't write about them. Well, no, writing doesn't confer importance. It reflects it. I don't think so. 
writing them will make them more important. Yeah, Amy is so mature and wise here. Wow. <laughs> um, I think this touches on, I think, Ben, what you were saying earlier is that even though this story isn't world impactful, it's still, oh, it's still impactful to the world. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Where's my applause? Where's my applause soundboard? Hold on. <laughs> There you go. There you go. There you go. I guess it would be well better for like a, like a little like a spa- like golf clap or something or snaps. Oh, golf clap. <laughs> I think you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier where it's these things may seem small to people outside of the situation, but they're so prevalent and, and themes running through all these different families that it, it is important to everybody, even though they might not seem super significant. Yeah, I mean, the scene where Joe accidentally burns Meg's hair when Lori and Joe are dancing together outside during the party because she her her dress was scorched, so she didn't want to like, dance inside. When they're carrying Meg into the house after she injured her ankle and everybody's talking at the same time and there's just all this bustling commotion and everybody interacting with each other. Um, the secret club meetings where all the girls <laughs> are acting like men and stamping their feet. These scenes and many others feel like they're lifted straight out of the life of an actual family. Mundane and ordinary events feel so important and worthy of appreciation. And I think anyone who's had a good family life knows how to appreciate these moments. And it's it's great to see a movie that's able to capture the essence of these moments and put them on the screen in a way that shares them with the audience, which is also apparently what the book is supposed to be able to accomplish. So uh, at least I haven't read the book, obviously, so that's what I'm told the book does. And from my perspective, the movie delivers on the apparent appeal of the book by showing us the simple joys of domesticated life. Yeah, I I think this theme of storytelling, I think personally, it's something that I really relate to. And I love the idea of how important stories are to the cult, like culture and to um, individuals, right? To, it's conveying this importance. It's making it more important because it's written in this story. And I really like the semi-autobiographical aspect of this in which it is based on true events, but sort of twisted. It, it, and I think what that does is it gets to the truth without worrying about the facts so much, <laughs> if that makes sense. Fiction is, you know, lies to tell the truth. And I think that this is a ex- great example of that. They're trying to te- like give you a feeling, give you an ask, like a perspective about what life was like, like uh, back then. And for people like this, um, and if you worried so much about what actually happened, you wouldn't be able to do that as well. So having this sort of uh, twist between reality and fiction allows that to synthesize to something really specific to show you exactly what the what the author wants to show you and get across that feeling so much more um, easily and more artistically. Um, and I I think that's uh, amazing and proof. Uh, the, the story is, is stand, stood the test of time, I think, because it is told so well. And I think one other scene in the movie that kind of goes back to this is at the end when Joe actually hands him his hands Mr. Dashwood, the editor, her book, and he kind of tosses it aside, writes back a letter, like, eh, thanks, no thanks. And his his daughters actually pick up the book and they come to him super excited. What happens to little women? You know, what happens with this story? And it, it kind of goes to show that 
it is important. People want to hear about this just because the one limited perspective of publishing didn't deem it worth importance doesn't mean that people don't want it and they don't want to see it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a whole demographic they haven't they haven't tapped into, right? Like, and it's it's think of it a money way exactly. It's like, more money that you could be. It's making. limited limited to your, your how you're thinking about marketing, and that's the that's the thing, right? And um, I mean, honestly, the other the other aspect of this story, the reason other reason why it's lasted so long is because there aren't that many coming of age stories for women, not even in the last 150 years. Um, this is probably the best known one. Um, which is crazy because, you know, we've had a long time to get to this point. You know, even like like Harry Potter was written by a woman, woman, but it's about a boy, right? Like there's so many of these coming age sto- coming of age stories that are we think about, but hardly any of them focus on women specifically. Um, I think you get coming of age stories for women, but they just have to be in a dystopia. Oh, yes, that's right. That's what you get recently. Hunger like Games. Hunger Games. Uh, yeah, but she's going to be fearing for her life the whole right, time, right. right? Yes. And the, that's the, the way other it should one be. Was... Divergent, right? Divergent, yeah, um, that one there's too. There's one other one, isn't there? Uh, the Giver doesn't, doesn't really count. That's that's a boy too. Um, but that's, I, I will admit, like young adult dystopian fiction pretty much my guilty pleasure i love just <laughs> eating those books up and it's usually a female protagonist in some kind of coming of age story right. but how do she's we yeah feeling for her life and there's how a love do we set this in the future but she's a woman and so she has to be afraid so how do we get that to work of course she has to be afraid and she's has to decide between her brown-haired hometown friend right. and the blonde guy that's from her new society that's right how does she decide <laughs> That's what and I, I want to know. I still eat it up every time. <laughs> I still read it. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> got the formula down. It's perfect. Um, all right, Sam, you hinted at this, so let's, let's dive into it. Uh, what do you think about the ending? Is it truly a happy ending, even though it's not the ending the author wanted? I think it plays like a funny homage to the situation that Louisa May Alcott found herself in. Yeah. So I think Mr. Dashwood telling Joe, saying, oh, you got to have your character marry this guy at the end. Like, people aren't going to be happy unless you marry him. She's like, fine, I'll do that. And, you know, Louise May Alcott originally didn't have that Frederick character in there to give Joe someone to marry at the end. And when she did put him in, she made him older, like way older and not super conventionally attractive, but he was super smart. So, like, I Mm. guess good match for Joe. And... In the movie, we see the happy, quote unquote, ending where she romantically chases after Frederick, right? And then they're in the school together. All these are kind of cast in like a rosy hue and the romance, whatever seems, the the romance scene seems totally rushed and kind of out there. You sit there and you're like, wait, where is this coming from? Why, what's with the gaggle of sisters you know, doing her over and sending her off in a carriage. This does not seem like it fits true to form. And then we see the last scene where Joe is holding her published book. And that scene is still cast in kind of cooler, more realistic tones. So I think, you know, they're giving you a taste of, oh, here's the marriage ending, but here is what's important to our character and what is happening. Yeah. That's, so the, I think, that's the true ending. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No. And the, the, Emotions that play off of Saoirse Ronan's face in that last scene is amazing. 
um, it's so hard to see exactly what she's thinking at that moment, but you can see her kind of transform um, like multiple times in that. I have a, I have a quote from uh, Collider uh, from the DGA podcast, which Gerwig uh, appeared on that sort of highlights some of the things you were saying, Sam. One of the things that I discovered while researching Louisa May Alcott, and I tried to bring in a lot of this, is unlike Joe March, who does get married, who does get married and have children. Louisa May Alcott never got married and she never had children, but she was convinced that she needed to have Joe get married and have some children in order to sell the book. But she never wanted that for her heroine. She wanted her to remain, as she call it, a literary spinster. But they convinced her, no, this is not going to work. So she did it the other way. So exactly what you just said, Sam, like this was never really the intention uh, for Joe. And it was always kind of put in there just to make it sell better. And who knows, like maybe that's true. I mean, there's certainly, you know, uh, it certainly has lasted this long. People are still buying this book, right? But it's, uh, it, I don't know if it's because of that ending or not. I don't know. Like there's, there's been movies where I really like the movie and then the ending is just terrible. It's just like, oh, wow. Okay. You just went back and undid everything you did before. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it doesn't count. I had such a good time watching this movie. The <laughs> ending, don't worry about it, right? I'll just turn it off early next time I watch it. <laughs> Close the laptop. Right, <laughs> right but, but we don't know how the book would have gone if she didn't get married or how it would have been received. That's it's true. Schrodinger's marriage because... Uh, <laughs> That's true, because, it really is. <laughs> well, um, I think that Sam's interpretation of this is the best one because when I was watching this movie, I was confused. I was like, this kind of runs counter to what I would expect from the book from Joe at this point so why and and the way that it's overly glamorized they literally have like the rain and the umbrella and the like getting there just in time and yeah. the embrace and the kiss like it's straight you know it's it's so perfect and so romantic that it's like there's no way this is supposed to happen <laughs> there's no way this is supposed to be believable um and I like that it could like it probably is kind of poking fun at the idea that this was forced this was still the like societal influence and what had to be done to get it published and, and through the gate uh that the gatekeepers you know force her to get through so yeah um well the yeah, framing I, I, right i, like I mean the the framing of the publishing guy saying this is what you need to do this is not acceptable right all of that aids in this right and gives in primes you to come to the conclusion that this isn't necessarily real um which is uh i don't know it's, it's uh, i think that's pretty interesting it's a it's a creative way to to end the movie for sure okay well we are going to take a little break uh but don't go away because when we return we're going to be going over our cool easter eggs and delivering our ratings so we'll be right back Hi, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is DJ Jones, nose tackle for the San Francisco 49ers. This is Squilliam Fancy Son from Band Class. And you're listening to Affable Chat. My favorite podcast. Good day. I'm an Australian wildlife expert. When I'm out in the outback, I love listening to Affable Chat. It's the best podcast ever. Even the animals love it too. This is Corey Novotny. This is Donnie Dolphin. Oh, it's me, Danny Zuko from Greek. This is Ghislaine Maxwell, and you're listening to Affable Chat. And we're back with local woman Sam <laughs> talking about little women. 
And Joey, I believe you had a couple of quotes you wanted to talk about. Yes. So there's this one thing, one aspect of this movie that I really want to highlight. And I want you guys' thoughts on it because honestly, the more I think about it, the more crazy I feel. So maybe you guys will tell me what's going on. I'm going to play two quotes for you. The first one is between Laurie and Meg when Meg is at her special ball wearing her uh, new dress that she's uh, got from one of her fancy friends. Do you like how I look? No, I don't. Why not? I don't like fuss and feathers. You were the rudest boy I ever saw. God, I, I want to use that. You were the rudest boy I ever saw. Like, the, the, you saw someone who being rude. Love that. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the other one is from Frederick talking to Joe um, about her uh, stories that she's written in the paper that have been published. Those are just stories, of course. But I'm working on a novel. And your novel it will be like this? Yes. So far, anyway. With plots like this? Jaws and, and killing? And it sells, so... Why don't you sign your real name? Oh, my mother wouldn't like it. It's too gory for her. And I want to help with the money I make and not worry her. You know, I, 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 I don't like them. Honestly, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think that they're not good. Uh, but they're, they're published in, in the papers, and people have always said that I'm talented. Oh, I think you're talented, which is why I'm being so, so blunt. I can't afford to starve on praise. Yeah, are you upset? Of course I'm upset. You just, you just told me you didn't like my work. I thought you wanted honesty. I, yes, I do. Has no one ever talked to you like this before? <laughs> yes, I've been rejected plenty of times. Do you have anyone to take you seriously, Joe, to talk about your work? And, and who made you high priest of what's good and what's bad, huh? No one, and I'm not... Well, then why are you acting like it? Joe, Joe, you, your reaction indicates that My you must think there is some truth. indicates that you are a pompous blowhard. Shakespeare wrote for the Shakespeare masses. Shakespeare was the greatest poet who ever lived because he smuggled his poetry in popular works. Well, I'm no Shakespeare. Thank goodness we already have him. If you know so much about it, then why don't you just do it yourself? Because I'm not a writer? I don't have the gifts you have. No, you don't. And you will always be a critic and never an author. And, and the world will, will forget that you ever even lived. Oh, I'm, sh I'm sure they will. So what exactly is going on here? Both of these boys are clearly interested in these young women. Yet they say stuff that is pretty rude. Both of them seem to hide behind this honesty is the best policy defense. But I'm not going to, and I'm not going to argue that honesty is not valuable. I just really wish this idea had been flushed out more. Because I think it is central to the major themes of this movie. Let's take a charitable approach first. Both Frederick and Laurie are attempting to get to the core of these women, right? To show them that they really care by being forthright and by saying what they mean. They believe that by being very honest, they can demonstrate that they are serious about how they feel about Joe and Meg. But they don't. Uh, they don't show anything except for cruelty. Neither of them says, you don't need to dress a certain way or write a certain way. You're perfect just the way you are. They don't ever go to the second part of that statement. They just let it be implied. If they were really just being honest, then why don't they just come out and say, honestly, I just want to be with you? What's with the negging? 
And the, the less charitable approach, uh, this is simply a demonstration of privilege. Women back then and today don't just get a don't just get to act however they please or dress however they please. There are standards they must be met. There are expectations for women to be and look a certain way. If the situation was reversed and Frederick asked Joe to read one of his stories, how do you think he would respond to brutal negative feedback? She's attempting to make her way through a hostile place and navigating it skillfully. For Joe, the point of writing isn't just to put her mind on paper, like she says in that quote. It is to entertain and to sell. It is to use her gifts for something practical. That means making sacrifices. And then Frederick comes down with a, why are you selling your soul? Why don't you write something real? This is awfully easy for you to say, second most attractive Fred in this movie. You have the privilege oh. of not having to make that choice or that sacrifice. And then Meg, when she is dressed up for the, her ball, which isn't normal for her, she even says this later that she just wants to have her fun. She is doing something different and fun. She is engaging fully in a different world and dreaming of being there. And Laurie swaggers in and says, why are you doing this yourself? Why don't you pretend to be something other than what I think you are? Which again, is really unfair. The point of Meg going to this event is to learn how to play the game. For young women who want to advance in this world, dressing up, going to balls, and acting proper is a perfectly legitimate way to get ahead. It is something that Laurie, being a boy and being rich, does not ever have to participate in. He, is, he has the privilege of sulking around and making a fool of himself. People will still want to marry him if for no other reason than his family name. It's cruel for someone who is already near the top of the social ladder to turn around and say, why are you even trying? So again, I don't really understand what the purpose this serves to the story. Are we supposed to agree with the men that women shouldn't play these games and shouldn't be authentic or should be authentic? Uh, has this ever really been a choice for women? Or is there something else going on here about the nature of honesty? These scenes frustrate me because the criticisms le levied at Joe and Meg by their weird boyfriends are things both of these women have definitely considered. They know they are compromising, but they're doing it anyway. Such is the role of women in society. But the men saying, oh, why are you not living up to my moral standard? They completely miss the thousands of other compromises women make just to survive. It's like, why now? And why this? What use is their, quite, um, their quote unquote honesty when it is obvious and 10 steps behind the women's decisions? I mean, I think that they're basically a time and place for these kinds of conversations, but it also doesn't seem like these w men even understand why these women are doing what they're doing. Am I going crazy here? Can you guys help me with this? <laughs> I can, yeah, I, I can understand your frustration at these two interactions. I feel like that's part of why they're in there. I don't know. Mm. All right, let me get into it. So first with like Meg and Lori, I think Meg is going out to these balls where she is not the big sister of four, mm -hmm. right? She can kind of let her hair down play this part of someone in the society who fits in, who wears the dresses, and she's having fun. Yes. She's having fun doing all this. She's not in her mind being like, I'm betraying my true nature by doing this. I'm whatever. I, it's, not, it's not crazy. She's having fun. She's wearing dresses. She's drinking alcohol. She's letting loose, right? She doesn't have a bunch of this stuff on her, and she's vulnerable in this moment because she doesn't normally do this. And for Lori to come up to her and be like, what are you doing? That is so biting. That is just so rude. Yes. Like, it, it definitely pisses me off. I understand that. Am I going crazy from this? And I think it's 
probably a little bit what you said of his privilege, right? Like, why are you acting like this? Why aren't you acting like the Meg that I've seen playing the games with me and how you are in this very setting? And I feel like some of it is we're supposed to agree with Laurie a little bit, how it's framed in this movie. And that kind of also makes me angry. Yes. She's like, no, we shouldn't agree with Laurie. We should support Meg. Let her do what she wants. And for him to strike at her when she's vulnerable like that in a situation where he's clearly comfortable just shows how much of a, a dick he can be, basically. Yeah. And he eventually, I think he comes back and apologizes for this, right? And she's like, but she's like sulking by the window, right? All alone in her beautiful dress, right? Yeah. Sitting so, on the on the couch with like her dress like that, where she's all yeah, spread she's out. Like, I thought, I was like, clearly really upset by this, right? Because she values Lori's opinion because he, for no other reason than he's her, her friend, but also because he, belongs here right he knows what it's like to be in this sort of situation and like what did he expect i don't know it's just so the thing that bothers me the most is that it's framed as if this is supposed like he has a point right that like this is something that she shouldn't be doing when in fact like it doesn't i, I don't see any problem that sh what she's doing right you know i, I don't see this as being Agreed. something that uh really compromises her in any way maybe if something that joe is doing you know which would be antithetical to what you know she espouses. But Meg wants to be a part of this, right? She wants to have a family and, and wants to have nice things, right? That's part of her personality in a way. So it's, it's, it's weird for him to come down with this and for the movie to sort of take his side in this moment to be like, oh, like Laurie is coming in making this thing. Benjamin, you're cringing at me. What do you think? Well, I don't think the movie makes the argument that he's right. Yeah, uh, I, I in, in general, I the thing that was something that really did surprise me about this movie is that men aren't, you know, uh, like explicitly vilified. I think this movie really lets men off easy <laughs> because <laughs> there's a lot of things from this time period that are normalized that could have been portrayed and really show you how harshly brutal it was to be in be a woman living amongst men. Right, right, uh, and and things that were society societally acceptable back then, but we don't see any of that. Um, in fact, like men kind of play a background role in general, but they also the one the men we do the men we get to know are portrayed in a very positive light. Um, but the way that they do take stabs at men are through you know thought out critiques and uh, things that can make men seem bad without completely casting them out. Uh, right, and I think. This is an example, Lori being like, well, this isn't how I see you, so this isn't how you should be, is a good way for us to be like, okay, men don't get it, but we don't need to cast him out and be like, all men are evil. Uh, he can still have some nuance to him. Um, so I think that like your reaction is the intended reaction. Lori's being a moron. He's being a rude little boy. And, uh, and you're supposed to... I, I was frustrated at it. I think that's how you're supposed to feel. I think this kind of parallels a if i were to put it in a modern space i think it's when a girl like does her makeup really cool or something and puts in some time expressing herself and her appearance and it's not always i'm gonna do my makeup this way so boys like it right a lot of times when girls wear makeup it's for other girls because yes, men sorry are to generalize. yeah you guys yeah. don't notice anything <laughs> but and this is, you know, this has happened to me personally in my like lab and it pisses me off to no end because sometimes 
So I go into work every day and I do not wear makeup normally. And when I do wear makeup, one of the delightful postdocs will look at me and say, Sam, why does your face look different today? Or Sam, what's on your eyes? And in that moment when you're kind of expressing yourself in a different way, maybe a little bit vulnerable for someone to say like, basically what's wrong with you today? That really just cuts you. So for for Meg in this situation, you know, she's a she's in a full beat. She's drinking. She's having fun. And for someone to be like, what are you doing? That is just like, wow. <laughs> He's it, it, Lori's also giving the vibe of you looked so much prettier without makeup. It's like, screw you. <laughs> yes. I don't care if I look prettier to you at that point or not. I'm having fun and expressing myself. Not everything I do is to serve you and to serve this idea that you have of me. So I feel like. I feel like the reaction that Joey and I and you are having, Benjamin, are like the right one if he's being a dick, like let girls do what they want. But I think the way it's framed in the movie, especially when he comes over to Meg to apologize later, I think the way it's shot or something about it made me feel a little bit like we were supposed to agree with Lori, like her place was back with the John and that whole thing. So I that kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit now that we're talking about it, Joey. But I'd love if if the whole point was to be like, Laura's wrong here, obviously. But I feel like they kind of played it off in a way where it's like, yeah. That's, I don't know. I, I'm feeling totally anti Lori in this situation. <laughs> but I actually feel a little bit different about Frederick. Or Friedrich? How, did, how are we supposed to pronounce that? I don't that? know. I'm calling well, him Frederick. You got, <laughs> second most attractive Fred, as Joey so aptly put it. He... I actually felt like his criticism wasn't as blatantly uh, false or blatantly uh, ignorant. Uh, While I do think that what you're saying is true, Joey, that Joe isn't just writing here to express herself, right? Right. She has a skill, and she's putting that skill to good use so that she can support her family, right? It it would be a privilege for her to be able to uh, just weave these poetic stories and have them sell enough for her to be able to accomplish the things she has to financially. But Frederick uh, is kind of like, I think he makes a good point where he says that Shakespeare was able to weave his uh, poetry into uh, mainstream appeal, into stories that could be consumed by the masses. And I also think that's exactly what Joe ends up doing with her book. So I wasn't as taken aback by his criticism uh, because I felt like it was a little bit more grounded in reality. Yeah, but there's this there's this crazy fallout from this where she stops writing, right? After she moves back home and with Beth, with 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 uh um and she's talking to Beth, right? And they're out on the beach and Beth's like, "Why don't you write anymore? Why don't you write something for me?" Right? She's like, "I don't want to do that anymore. People don't like what I write. People don't like it. They think it's bad." Um like basically taking Frederick's word for it, like saying that. And although she doesn't give him a chance to expand on what it is, I don't think he's very articulate in this moment. And I think that that's, I think they, the movie gives him the benefit of the doubt to say he would have said more if Joe had given him the chance. I think that um, like the, the expression, I, I think he's just totally missing the point, right? He's like, I don't like this because it's popular in a way, right? I don't like this because it's something that people like the, the masses like or whatever. I think it takes probably more skill to alter your writing to be to fit into a mold, right? Um, than to just simply write 
like what you were expressing necessarily, right? I think if you're trying to meet some sort of goal like that to fit into some sort of, you know, category, I think that takes a lot of skill to be able to meet those requirements. Um, and, you know, that's an exercise in imagination um, that works. And I mean, like, look at um, at the very beginning, right? When she gives the the publisher her first story and he crosses out something and he's like, I don't care about that. People want to hear the, you know, the the gory stuff they want to hear like the action stuff whatever clearly like he, he's hinting at that she put in a bunch of character moments that he's taking out right all of these small moments between people that didn't ultimately end up serving the story but ended up building up the characters or or some other you know aspect of it that wasn't as flashy um so like even if she attempted that she wouldn't she wouldn't be able to to do what frederick is saying it's not even really an option for her so like when he says don't even like well, he doesn't say don't even try but that's what she hears and it ultimately has that huge uh impact on her and again i don't like i agree with joe like what he doesn't know what he's talking about it's not so much that like he doesn't know about writing because maybe he does it's that he doesn't even understand what she's trying to do here um and and doesn't even seem to like to get what the point of this is, right? And I think that her frustration with him is absolutely warranted because of that. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think I I definitely had the same reaction to this as, eh, I, I don't love it, but I'm not as eye-rolling as I was with this Megan Laurie moment. Yeah. I think prefacing all this, you know, Fred, second most attractive Fred, <laughs> is very German in this scene. Right. Right, like... I think his bluntness is just probably because he's German, right? He's just like, oh, it's not very good. Not in like a mean, trying to be mean, just matter of fact, don't think this is very good. So I think that tone probably didn't go over with Joe very well because she is so emotionally invested in her own writing and her stock as a writer. So I think that probably, and she's a bit of a hothead as we know, like this whole movie. So I think it was, this interaction was just a, not played out very well in terms of how it's communicated. I think it is a nice thing where Fred is giving her an honest critique that she has not received before because no one has recognized her talents or her potential to do this. So I think in that regard, he's treating her as an equal, even if it comes off (laughs) very condescending as it does. I think it's good intentions, bad tone, the way he this interaction kind of plays out. No, I can agree with that. Yeah. And I I think even as you were saying, Joey, her interactions with people looking at her writing in the past, Dash would just, you know, crossed out this or she's gotten rejections, but no one's ever respected her enough, I would say, to be like, this is where you can improve, not just flat out no, that I recognize your talents and I think you can do better, which I think also plays into her, you know, her uh, becoming an adult and reckoning with her own talents. She's not just getting sunshine pumped up her butt anymore by her sisters Mm -hmm. when she's writing these plays. Because I think this scene is also juxtaposed with a scene with her sisters where she brings them her writing and they say, oh, this is just as great as Shakespeare. So that kind of makes it stronger how she's only received good things. So this is her first time saying this writing isn't so good and she's having an intense reaction to it, which is totally fair and warranted. And I do agree that his critique too comes from this place of privilege where he's like, well, why don't you just write what you know is good? Why don't you work on this? And she's 
putting money on the table. She has to do it. So you can't really falter for it. No, I think that's a good point. I, I think there is an obvious like miscommunication here. I, like you said, like I think there's a language barrier or something where, you know, or maybe a cultural barrier where he's being blunt without being, um, you know, without intending it to be mean. Um, and I think that's another aspect of the simulated reality, which is something that I really like about this movie, of how things don't go perfectly every time. You know, things don't work out exactly the way you expect them to, uh, because that's not how the real world works either. Okay, you guys made me, you made me call me off the ledge a little bit, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Crisis averted. Um, okay, well, let's move on and talk about our cool Easter eggs. Uh, Sam, what, uh, what cool trivia you got for uh, Little Women? At one point in the movie, Joe gives the line, I'd rather be a free spinster and paddle my own canoe. She's either talking to Aunt March or, or Lori or someone. And I think this shows the homage that Greta Gerwig gives to the, the original author of Little Women because this was a quote from Louisa May Alcott directly. This was not in any of the Little Women books or anything like that. Yeah. So I think that was kind of fun. That is fun. And then the only other tidbit I have is uh, Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet also p- play a failed relationship in uh, Lady Bird. And he's also... Definitely a dick in that movie. So I think Greta Gerwig's typecasting him a little bit. But, you know, he's nice to look at enough, so it's okay. There you go. <laughs> okay, I got, I got a couple. Um, so after finding out that the adaptation was in the works, Saoirse Ronan reached out to Greta Gerwig and told her she decided she was going to play Joe March. Gerwig was initially hesitant to cast Ronan after having just worked with her on Lady Bird, but after realizing that more or less casting herself was a very Joe thing to do, Gerwig sent Ronan an email that said, yes, you're Joe. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> wow. The the absolute layers uh, that of storytelling going on here, where we have like a book that's written by uh, a woman author who's like kind of doing an autobiography, but then that book is made into a movie with a woman director who has an actress who is like embodying the character from the book who's embodying the author. Like it's it's very uh, like... Yeah. If you guys have ever seen um, The Great British Baking Show, I just finished the most recent collection oh and they... <laughs> They always teach you new vocab words for baking, and one of them is laminating, where you fold the uh, dough in on itself a bunch of times. And if you've ever eaten baklava, like that kind of flaky layer, that's that's called mm. lamination. And I do, I feel like there's there's a parallel there with the way that this story <laughs> at this point is has been folded in on itself multiple <laughs> through different layers and mediums to tell the story of Little Women. Uh, I think that that's pretty cool. That is cool. Okay. Um, Another thing, uh, Little Women has been adapted for the stage nine times, and including this movie, the 2019 movie, uh, it has seven film adaptations, including one that came out in 2018 uh, for the 150th anniversary. Um, and that one's actually set in the 2000s. Uh, so it's sort of a modern retelling of the story. Um, there's been a ton of television adaptations, three audio dramas, and it has inspired 10 other books. Um, including its direct sequel, Little Men. Um, so it's a, uh, uh, it's kind of a juggernaut in terms of literary. Wow! <laughs> Wait, the stars. early two thousands one. How is that? That's got to be way different, right? Yeah. Is that like when they remade Romeo and Juliet, but like 
the one with guns. Yes, it's exactly yeah. like that. It's it's Little Women, but with the guns. The America version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she, uh, Joe March is like a big gun advocate. Uh, I see. And so and that's like what she wants to do is like she wants to make and sell guns, but she also just has to balance that with being um, having to get married because no no husband wants to marry a, a gun girl. So. Wow. All right. Well, we'll have to do an episode on that one somewhere down the line. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I believe that brings us to the end of our conversation about Little Women. As we do on every episode, we will deliver our ratings, and we will have our guest go first. Sam, what rating do you want to give to Little Women? I give Little Women a 20-pound weighted blanket and five boxes of tissues for how many times I cried. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's great. Joey, what rating do you want to give to Little Women? I give this movie another 150 years of adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nice. And uh, for my rating, I give this movie a key to a little mailbox in the woods where we can exchange secret messages. Hey. So. <laughs> it's adorable. I thought that was a yeah, fun little uh, thing that they did together. Okay, well, that is it. Um, that is our the end of our discussion on Little Women and the end of our third episode in our Florence Pugh series. Sam, as a, uh, I want to thank you for being a local woman who is willing to come on to our humble podcast and give a woman's perspective. So thank you so much for being here. Um, where can the people find you on the internet? Thanks so much for having me. I had so much fun chatting with y'all. Um, I'm on the internet. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. And you can find me there. Yeah. Go ahead and try. Yeah. Our, uh, d- we'll link to it in the description uh, so you can find that there. But once again, thank you so much. Sam, for joining us. Joey, what is next on Affable Chat? The final episode in our Florence Pugh series, probably the most high-profile movie she's been in, Black Widow. So, yeah, we're going to be going back to the MCU. And there you uh, go. I, I'm not sure she plays as large of a role in this one as she does in the other ones, uh, but I, say it's I haven't like, seen it. So it's I a heavily know. supported role, you know? Okay. So, like, it's, well, it's almost like a buddy cop movie, you might say. Where she's one of the cops. Okay. <laughs> one of the buddies. Very good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Um, but for now, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this podcast, then tell your friends about it. All you have to say is, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Affable Chat, or send us an email, affablechat at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel. It's called Affable Chat. Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. That's twitch.tv slash affablechat. That's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.